From RTE Radio, I'm Neil O'Sheridan. This is Playback Daily. That's exactly what we're talking about. It's burning my eyes, but I can't look away. What are we doing? Like, why are we doing this to our, our, our gymnasts? Like, at such a young age. It's nearly at 30 million views now on TikTok. I think it's like 20, 28, nearly 29 million at right. the moment. So that's six times the population of Ireland. Yeah. Coming up on this edition of Playback Daily, Oliver Callan goes celeb stalking on his holidays. Is summer ruined? Why 99s might be on the way out? And how one man and his son's video got 30 million views on TikTok. That's all on the way over the next hour of the radio catch-up show that's always covered in sprinkles. The musings on the news, or newsings, if you will, on this morning's Ryan Tuberty show began with Oliver Callan sitting in for the freshly free on a Friday night's Ryan Tuberty, musing on the week he spent stalking celebrities in Italy recently. I'm in the afterglow of a holiday. It was only a week long, but it was one of those lovely ones that kind of felt like you're away for a month. Uh, I was in Italy for the past week and how fortunate to arrive home uh, into the sunshine and the forecasts of gorgeous summer weather into the bank holiday weekend, particularly for the West and uh, Northwest and the Midlands are going to be in the 20s all week, according to the papers. But the east wind means um, mid-teens for the East Coast. So whether you're in Curtlo or British Bay or up around Laytown and Sandy Cove, there's going to be a little bite. There's going to be a little bite in the air. So, But enjoy it anyway. It's going to be sunny, so no complaining out there. Uh, yeah, so I was away all weekend. You live in this lovely news-free zone, and I think a lot of us on holidays, we sort of tend to forget that the fantasy dreamscape that we've been living in for however long you're away ends the minute you reach the airport to return home uh, when you, you spot the first other Irish person besides yourself, you really resent for strange reasons, don't you? And you can see the ones who've enjoyed their time in Tuscany so much that they're now convinced, oh, they're going to start a whole new way of life, uh, brand new. So they arrive in Pisa Airport, head to toe in the flowy, flowery summer gear that they bought abroad. But you know is going to be the source of a lifetime nickname five minutes after they land home. So who does she think she is? Julia Roberts. Or Mamma Mia. And the gentleman, of course, who bought a, a lovely new hat, uh, but discovered the only way to get it home is to wear the hat. But of course, I'm not wearing the outfit that goes with the hat. So they kind of look like a financially embarrassed uh, uh, royal returning from exile or something. And then there's the drunk ones who forgot that the Irish people would be on the same plane as them going home. And the shame descends on them. Hopefully it descends on them, otherwise it would be a bit of a ruckus. And uh, there's the posh ones who are just basically appalled that they have to travel with the likes of you. Uh, so anyway, then you land in Dublin and reality really crashes in on you, especially if you're coming from Italy or Spain, because the fact that you won't taste a proper tomato, like a real tomato again for another year, starts to come down on you. And even when it's roasting here, it's just... It's just slightly freezing in Ireland. It's always freezing. By the way, Tuscany is glorious at the moment. They've had so much rain across the spring that it looks like Ireland. And I felt I was nearly among the, 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 the northeast drumlands. You know, they have the rolling green hills, uh, barley fields, the colour of louth, briars growing over the ditches. They have the, even the sticky weed, cleaver weed thing that's growing there. Pheasants everywhere, hares bounding about, oaks, boreens with grass growing up in the middle. It felt like home in a heatwave, but it's nice. It's nice to be home. And you never know who you're going to meet, by the way. I was in Florence. I spotted a very tall, elegant man who was so supremely dressed in Prada that he turned heads on the street. And who was it? Only your man, Jeff Goldblum. 
And if you're thinking either The Fly or Jurassic Park comes to your mind. So that's that's the age measure already, you know. Anyway, he was very, very warm. And um, I chanced what Larry David would call the stop and chat. I kind of initially he was kind of like it was a street. Myself and himself, the husband, were going down the street. And it's literally only ourselves and Jeff Goldblum. And I was going to say nothing, but I just kind of just said his name out loud. And I, he was a little bit kind of, oh, God. A pair of doses is probably what he was thinking. But I, I, I'd i seen him do a show about runners. So I commented on that straight away and he brightened up immediately. So he was obviously delighted because of the Disney Plus thing that probably no one had seen. And uh, so we had a little chat and we came to discover that Jeff Goldblum has never been to Ireland. He's 70 years of age now. Never, we haven't paddyified him. Um, I mean, if we can find an ancestor for Barack Obama, surely we'll get one for Jeff. And yes, his voice is every bit as melodious and tuneful in real life as it is on the, the big screen, uh, which I remarked upon. Um, or he, well, he does a singing thing when he does a photo. And um, I remarked on that and he was delighted with himself. Anyway, that was a very good celebrity bump in on holidays. If you've ever met somebody famous on holidays, it's a bit of crack. I have the photo. You can look it up on Instagram at the Oliver Callan. Is that me? Yes. Uh, I think the last person, um, a very, very famous person I saw on holidays was the actor Tom Hollander. You know, he's Pirates of the Caribbean, short kind of uh, guy. And he's in White Lotus 2. So I saw him in the streets of Barcelona. And he was looking very serious and austere, so not giving off an air of approachability, so I let him be. But uh, Jeff Goldblum, or Goldblum, very approachable, very sound in our experience. One meeting with Jeff Goldblum, and he's already using the royal we. But onward to some actual newsings. But speaking of Italy, by the way, the waters of Venice have turned fluorescent green near uh, the famous Rialto Bridge. Um, on their main canal just yesterday and the authorities are seeking to trace the cause uh, the fire department involved the regional environmental protection agency receiving samples of the waters they're working to identify the substance that changed the colour very very bright green kind of like the Chicago River during St Patrick's Day and there's been an emergency meeting to understand what's going on is this dangerous uh, they suspect environmental groups uh, because they've been kind of colouring monuments and uh, using you know biodegradable friendly substances to make their points I suppose uh, but usually they come forward to say that they've done it and we haven't heard yet uh, if they have or not. Sounds like too many Irish people visiting Venice, doesn't it? But wait, what's this new term involving social mores, the mention of which must have been in that memo that I missed? Fizzling. Have you heard of fizzling? We all know about ghosting. This is the thing where you're kind of in touch with someone, particularly in dating circumstances, and then suddenly you just completely blanked from them. You never hear from them again because they've ghosted you. So her.ie informs this morning the latest dating trend is even crueler than ghosting and it's called fizzling. So fizzling apparently seems to be worse from uh, from being ghosted apparently. But what exactly is fizzling? So um, ghosting sees a person you're chatting to, they simply drop off the face of the earth without warning, no follow-up explanation. By the way, if the ghosted person, the person who's ghosted you suddenly emerges after a year or two, they've zombied you and then they probably ghost you again. But anyway, fizzling, your desired partner slowly starts to take steps back and wean off you. They put in less and less effort very gradually until it eventually will come to a halt entirely and they'll be making excuses as to why they're not going to meet up. They slow down the communication a couple of days to reply to messages and so on. And according to a TikTok posted by America's number one matchmaker, apparently, they're called Talkify, the way to spot fizzling is when a person slows down the communication. Well, let's hear, let's hear from Talkify explaining fizzling and how cruel this terrible dating trend has become. If someone was very communicative, and now they're kind of not, 
and you're finding it harder to get in touch with them and they used to lead all the communication, but now you're the one leading all the communication, you're being fizzled. And take the hint, because actually that person is not worth being in a relationship anyway, because they don't have good communication skills. Take the hint, guys. I have to say, I'm slightly triggered by the how American that line was. You guys are being fizzled. Uh, when you go to Italy at this time of the year, a lot of Americans around. You guys have the Renaissance in Ireland? Did you have that over there? A lot of Americans. Americans are lovely. They're, ch they're chatty. They're chatty. Okay, I guess. No, I'm pretty sure I still don't know what fizzling is. Oh, well. Anyway, on to less controversial celeb news updates. Now, John Cleese is in the papers today uh, because he upset everyone a couple of months ago when he announced he was going to reboot Faulty Towers. And we all cried, leave it alone, it is perfect. So he's out to assure us that there will be no attempt to copy Faulty Towers. He's going to go as far, completely different to um, the original as possible. He's been chatting to the, new, to the news over there. The Monty Python star, 83, the Daily Mail tells us. Uh, original show, of course, went out in 1975 and 1979. Only 12 episodes ever. Uh, so what's he saying? He's saying it's, the new series is going to explore how the dramatic and cynical Basil navigates the modern world. But it's mostly going to be about the daughter, who's going to be played by John Cleese's actual daughter, who's called Camilla. That was a good choice, wasn't it? Camilla Cleese, in hindsight. And it's going to be abroad. It's going to be hugely different. Uh, it's going to be somewhere set in the sun, not in a big city, he says, but somewhere out in the sun with a lot of open air stuff, which we never got to do in Faulty Towers. And we've only just started thinking about it. He says he's spent a week on it so far. They've written a little bit, but he's busy at the moment. He's a stage version of Life of Brian he's working on. He's also working on a musical based on a fish called Wanda, which I think is going to be very popular because it is a beloved film as well. I think the good thing about this story is that he's 83 years of age and he's still working. Who wants to retire? Nobody wants to leave the party. Uh, but if he's going to set... Faulty Towers, a hotel abroad. That's a bit white lotusy, so we don't want to tread carefully there. A Faulty Towers white lotus mashup is the show the world needs right now. Drop it in my streaming box immediately, or I'll fizzle you. Accurate usage, right? Anyway, sadly, it's the world we live in where Hitler memorabilia goes on sale at auctions in Northern Ireland. The Irish Daily Mirror informs us today that Hitler's old pencil is going on sale in Belfast. What? Silver-plated pencil purported to have belonged to Adolf Hitler going under the hammer in Belfast, according to Rebecca Black. Um, it's believed to have been given, the former, given to the former Nazi dictator by his long-term partner, Eva Braun, as a gift for his 52nd birthday on the, in 1941. And it's inscribed with Eva on it and also the initials AH. It's an amazing photograph here in the mirror. It, it looks kind of... But it's... it's Nazi memorabilia and it's, it's, it's haunting. Who wants this stuff in their house? But maybe museums are, are going to buy them up and they become the sort of um, the draw, private museums. Uh, what else is going on sale? They're also going to sell an original signed photograph of Hitler um, and this sale is happening next week, Tuesday of next week. Uh, what Irish interests? Okay, here we go. Yes, yeah, so a wide range of sales. There's going to be a handwritten pardon by Queen Victoria dated 1869 for Irish rebels convicted of treason, uh, which is far more exciting particularly because um, this particular one of them is J.F.X. O'Brien, an Irish nationalist revolutionary who participated in a rise against the Brits in 1867. He was tried for high, reason, high treason. He was going to be sentenced to death, but she pardoned him, Queen Vic, as he probably called her, because they were bezies, uh, until he eventually fizzled her, obviously. Uh, but he was released, and he became the president of the Irish Republican Brotherhood and an MP for Cork City. So a very important person, a very important pardon happened there. Uh, but there you go, those auctions. There's always debates, aren't they? They probably shouldn't be selling that stuff. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Um, maybe not sell that sort of thing? 
put it in a small box in a small cupboard in a small room in a big museum? Well, let's leave the musings on the news. Or newsings, if you will. From this morning's Ryan Tuberty show, right there, shall we? How much would a calorie count on the beer tap influence your decision when it comes to ordering a pint? Or what about a calorie count on the menu? Would that have any impact on what you might order? Claire Byrne spoke this morning to Gina Murphy, owner of Hugo's Restaurant, Anthony Morrison, owner of Christie's Bar in Kilkenny, and Dr Donal O'Shea, HSE clinical lead on obesity, about the government's plans to put calorie counts on, well, everything by the sounds of it. Claire first asked Donal O'Shea what he thought of the plans. I mean, I think information and knowledge allows you to make informed decisions. And there's very good research done that about 30% of people are influenced by the displaying of calories and on average choose in the food setting. We don't have this for uh, beer and wine. In the food setting, choose about 90 90 kilocalories less per transaction. Mm -hmm. And at a population level, to have an initiative that influences 30% of people is massive. And do you think it would happen here? Because the British government did try to do it and then it was rejected because of the cost implications. Yeah, I think we should do it here. I think it's easier to do it here if the British are doing it. Historically, that's how we timed the sugar tax to coincide with the uh, UK's introduction. And the reformulation that followed that legislation was like nothing we've seen before. So legislation uh, influences the behaviour of the food and drinks industry. Mm-hmm. and can inform consumers in their choices. What about the unintended consequence, though? You go into a bar and you see the wine and the beer has, you know, close to 300 calories, let's say, for argument's sake. Ah, I'm going to choose a vodka and soda instead and I'll have three or four of those. I might have had one pint, so I'm drinking more alcohol than I otherwise would. Uh, you have to look at, uh, you know, switching behaviour, as it's called. Um, I think it's used more as a threat by the industry. Most people will have decided when they go into a pub They know their favourite drink. It's just whether they have it with a slimline tonic, uh, in which case your gin and tonic is 60 kilocalories if it's a single measure. A pint of Guinness, 125, 130 kilocalories. A pint of Lager, 160 kilocalories. And it might just mean people will have uh, one or two pints, not a third, when they they see it. Mm. Do do you really think, though, that, that most people will change their minds? If you're going in to have a pint, you're going to have a pint that's correct yeah and you don't want to be a killjoy about things but information is key and we have to acknowledge the fact that we're living in a society that has more chronic disease now than ever Mm -hmm. and obesity is a primary driver of that and we have to do our very best not just to treat the disease of obesity but also have preventive measures and this is a preventive measure that influences about 30% of the population. That's huge. You, you ran through some of the calorie counts there. I think there's a belief that stout, let's call it Guinness or Murphy's or whatever you're having, that it might have fewer calories than lager. Is that is that correct? Yeah, it's a modest difference about 40 kilocalories less in a pint of Guinness than in a pint of lager. Mm-hmm. Um It's not going to make a a huge difference, though, is it? Yeah, but again, at a population level, small changes over time make a big difference. At an individual level, there are small changes. Mm -hmm. But at a population level, it's like vaccination. One person getting vaccinated is no good. You need population change. Um, and, And our nutrition and physical activity profile, we have to think of it in that same public health 
sense. Okay, okay. before we talk about uh, wine and the amount of wine that we're putting in the glass, let's have a, a quick word with our publican and our restaurant owner. So, Anthony, do people often ask you about the calorie counts in drinks? Does it come up? No, I think the doctor's right. I think the decision is made ever before you enter the pub and on what drink you're going to purchase. You know, you're going to purchase your favourite drink. Uh, are people aware of the calorie count? We live in a, in a world with information at our fingertips, so I think people are educated enough to make a decision on what they want to consume when they're entering a licensed premises. But with regard to the calories, yeah, I'm sure some of my customers are aware of it. I personally, it's not my space. It, it doesn't um, bother me as much as it probably should. But, yeah, they make their own decisions coming in. I'm sure if, if they do want the information, they can get it readily themselves at, at, a, at a fingertip of the mm-hmm. phone. Mm-hmm. And do you think, though, if you had somebody walking in and you had, say, all of the calorie counts on the taps across, that they might say, well, I'm going to have a pint, so I'm going to have the one with the with fewer calories in it? Yeah, look, don't get me wrong. There's, there's all walks of life out there. We open our door every morning. We don't know what's coming in. But I suppose if people do want the information and, and society deems it relevant, I mean, it'll, the burden will fall on suppliers to give it to me, to give it to you. So I don't think it on the on the taps is going to make a major uh, Im- impact on the decision-making process and the consumer. But I suppose if they do want it, it, it might be handy for us to have some uh, parchment to paper, something that we can obviously give them the information they need if they don't already have it but um, putting it on the taps most people will tell you the bar taps are quite difficult to read the best things people choose you know by branding or by you know the colours that they're used to seeing it's, it, they don't really get right up close to the tap the tap okay. is only maybe 70 mil wide you know it's not a it's not a, a, a huge space to be putting information on that people will readily read um, Donald, Donald wants to come in there go ahead yeah, no, there's very good evidence that you need the calorie count to be display, displayed as close to the point of purchase as possible for it to have its maximum impact. So scan the QR code is no good. It needs to be there in the eye line of the consumer mm-hmm. if it's to have its optimum effect. Yeah, I know there's a one coffee chain certainly that does it and the occasional time where I say to myself, well, I might have a cappuccino today. When I see the calorie count, I go, no, actually, it's not worth it. I'll stick with the old boring Americano. I think the calories on menu boards there made a huge difference to people's choices uh, when they went into coffee shops. And you could see the size of the muffins and the size of the uh, kind of caramel squares reduce. So they came below 298 calories instead of 360. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that it, it just was a, a more... And they're the changes that so, are even so, better. So it's changing more than con- consumer behaviour then in, in that case. Absolutely. It's changing portion size. Yeah, Gina, what would you make of, of the idea of calorie counts on drinks menus? So the list of beers that you have, the wine list, the spirit list, do you think it would affect behaviour? No, no, I don't. Um, listen, I'm all for public health and um, the promotion of healthy eating and healthy dining and and um, drinking. But things like this, we wouldn't see as being an influence on consumer behaviour at all. Um, when people come to a restaurant, it's not something they do every day. You know, it's it's an occasion or it's uh, there's a reason for doing it. It doesn't tend to influence. Uh, I wouldn't see it as an influencer on what their choices would be because it's a special occasion. So they're going to have something that they wouldn't normally have. Now, we're very different. We're only a, a tiny portion of, you know, the whole retail um, sector that caters to consumers. So, you know, we're just we're just a small slice of it. I don't think it would really have a bearing on us. But the other side of it is, if we are to do calories on menus, it's a very difficult and onerous 
task to do and especially with small businesses you know we're we're not nutritionists we're we're chefs and we're um restaurateurs but it's a very specific task and it's a very specific skill to to analyze a dish for its calorie content so when when you're dealing with items that change daily it, it really would be um very I don't know how, how to say this, but it'd be, like, it it'd just be very be, onerous for, for you to do that, well, I think, is what you're saying. Very impractical. I mean, okay. it would wipe out your ability to do specials or daily dishes because you just wouldn't have the um, tools to be able to work out exactly to the calorie count. And where okay, do you well, stop? How accurate does it have to be? Gina Murphy, owner of Hugo's Restaurant there, talking to Claire Byrne, along with Anthony Morrison, owner of Christie's Bar in Kilkenny, and Dr. Donal O'Shea, HSE Clinical Lead on Obesity, about the government's plans for food and drink labelling. It sure sounds like it's going to take a lot longer to read the menu. The GAA's decision to make under-12 games non-competitive was to the fore in this afternoon's live line when caller Margaret gave Joe Duffy her opinion on the new rule. Well, we're well experienced in the, the gene. Um, my husband trains is he both trains both soccer team and hurling football teams at underage. Okay. And when he goes to blitzes, he gives balanced teams. The teams are, you know, they're, they're, it's not an A and a B team. It's a balanced team he puts out, and it's all about player development. Okay. It works. There are parents who've said to him, "Our children wouldn't be here only for you, only for the." the method he's used mm-hmm. in this. So it's not about winning at all costs and having the best of the best. It's about everybody having their turn, everyone getting their, you know, everyone being valuable on that team. OK, it's, about, you know, it's, it's, it's not about nurturing the best and forgetting the rest. It's about giving everyone a, a chance. Exactly, or else the best won't have a team to play with if you don't nurture everybody. Of course, okay. It's not a so, solo sport. So you you so, agree you agree with what the GAA have done in that in their yes. code, um, but you disagree with what's happening in gymnastics Ireland. Yes. So, Tell us why. Um, Explain our, that to people. Our daughter, yeah, our daughter just she absolutely adores gymnastics, and we chose to put her into gymnastics at a young age because the skills that you learn in gymnastics there they're fundamental. To every sport, it is the one. It is that, and athletics are the best things you can put your child into great, great. at a young age, because the the core strength she has from the exercises she does and the flexibility, they are fantastic for all sports. So we got her into gymnastics. She absolutely loves it. So quickly she got into an advanced, the advanced class, and. I suppose now we're just kind of, we kind of went along with everything that was mm-hmm. thrown our way and for the last few years. And now we're kind of seeing, right, it's all about competition with them. So last, she was last week, we were, um, she was up in Dublin. And in her discipline, there are, there are very few that compete in her discipline. Now, the gymnastics, they have it, they've it divided up really well as in, so mm-hmm. everyone can compete at their level. Um, so, Sometimes it ends up with very few competitors in a situation, in, in a competition. It just so happened that there were four in her competition. Mm. Four. And Gymnastics Ireland does a first, second, third, and leaves out the fourth. <laughs> like that, it just, it kills myself and my husband just to see someone upset and over... What? Your, your, your what? daughter is 10... 
came yeah. came fourth in a, a competition that only had four participants. Yeah, so there was but no, three... it, it, it wasn't my daughter, but it was, it was someone Another else. Guy. Okay, oh, okay, oh, okay. Team, yeah. But you, you saw yeah. what happened. Um, so the yeah. first, first place got gold, second place silver, third place bronze, and the only other remaining competitor got tears. Yeah, she got a, a participation medal and okay. tears. Tears. But ev- everyone gets they, a participation medal, don't you? We, we yeah. do. Yeah, yeah and they cool. all like they knew it was coming. They had the list of competitors. They had the list of competitors way beforehand. They knew it was coming. They were all from the same club. The four people were for the same club. They were competing against each other, and one gets left out. And are the competitions in gymnastics Ireland uh, grouped under age as well? What what age? What age do you can? You, what age do you begin to compete? You can compete. I'd say it's about six. I'd say, six, okay. um, yeah, it's it's very young. And while they're competing, they're uploading the scores. Like it's very professionally done, but it's they're uploading the scores online. And here we are, the parents at the sideline checking, "Where's my child? Where's my child ranked? Where's my child?" Yeah. <laughs> it is stressful for a parent. What is it for the child competing? And it just like with the talk about the GA lately, it just came to my mind. What are we doing? Like, why are we doing this to our, our, our gymnasts? Like, at such a young age, like fine over twelve, if that's what mm-hmm. people want to partake in, then work away. But at such a young age, at such a tender age, of you know, either making a child love a sport or hate a sport, that's how we. That is that is that is that the correct way? Is that the right way we should be doing this? And you know, t- where, where do, we know where GAA matches happen in the local park or whatever. Where where do the, comp- the, the gymnastic <laughs> competitions happen? Are they all over the country? So, I wish. <laughs> no, we it's Dublin. So they do a gym a gym, a gym start. I saw that they did that in UL there lately. In Limerick, yeah. Um, in Limerick, yeah. Um, but otherwise, everything else is in Dublin. So we are brought to Dublin uh, to twice, three times a year if you want to compete in these, so it's always Dublin. Um, again, why? Why always Dublin? Yeah. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's like it's a really expensive day out for parents. Like, it's well, like, we, it, we, yeah. like we've given up staying. We, we can't afford to stay the night before. No, so no we one travel in Dublin, up. yeah. No, not anymore. We, uh, so we travel up and down on the day. So we, it's a very early start. We're there, like, we're leaving at half six in the morning. Um, they, they charge, so the competitions can range from about 80 to 110 euros, and then we're charged a spectator's fee as well. What do you, hang on, hang on. What do you mean the competition can cost between 85 and 110? Mm-hmm. There was one competition, the first one she did was 85, and it was 110, then the second one, I'm not too sure why. What, to, to, to enter? Increase. Yes, to enter. Yeah. That's it, to enter? To enter, yes. <laughs> and then... <laughs> Like it just it just was brought to my attention by someone like that's 110 say for one discipline. Yeah. Some children might do more than one discipline. Okay. And they by the way, do, uh, to, that's to enter the competition. Do you pay to enter the building? Yeah, the spectators pay then as well. So are you, are, uh, thirteen. Are parents spectators? Yes. So much do you pay in? Yes, I pay thirteen euros to go in to see it, and children. I think it's about eight euros for a child. <laughs> yeah. That's Margaret talking to Joe Duffy about non-competitive rules for under twelves in GAA and other sports on this afternoon's Live Line.
Trauma Tylig on TG Carr revisits the impact of some of the most violent events in the Irish Civil War. Aidan Larkin, grandson of a victim of the Ballycidi massacre, joined Oliver Callan in studio this morning. Grandad uh, had been living in Liverpool, married to Eileen Walsh O'Connor for some years. My mum was two years of age at the time of his death. Uh, He had uh, been working with the Merchant Navy. He had, during the Great War, served with the Royal Navy. And afterwards, he sailed on such ships as the Mauritania crossing the Atlantic. That was his day job. For the Republican movement, he imported arms and ammunition into Irish ports from Britain and America, where they were sourced by others. So he was active in the War of Independence? He was. But afterwards, he was just living in Liverpool, wasn't he? Well, no, he, uh, he continued to ship arms <laughs> to the anti-treaty forces during the, war, the during Civil, Civil war. war. And by November, he knew that wasn't going well. And he and Eileen had a plan to emigrate to America. Uh-huh. And I have his birth cert, which he bought in order to identify himself when he got to America, uh, as he planned to set himself up and then send for his wife and child. Uh, so he was planning to leave. And then what happened to him? Well, uh, he was waiting for a job to come up on a, on a ship yeah. that would get him there. And in the meantime, he was serving on a number of smaller vessels that sailed between Liverpool and Limerick. And he had the great misfortune on the 5th of March that his ship, the Caharacon, docked at Feenet. And there was a detachment of Free State troops waiting for it. Right. They boarded the ship and asked for him by name. So they knew about him, what he'd be yeah, the gun. Yeah. But this particular ship had no weapons on board, had it? It was just a mailboat. They searched it and they didn't find any. But they took him prisoner and they got him to push the lorry to get it going and brought him to Ballymullen Barracks. And then the following night, they killed him. He was in the, he was one of the men that were strapped to a mine uh, infamously in Ballyseedy. Yeah. And uh, he was slaughtered, wasn't he? It was horrific, one of the most horrific episodes in the, in the whole Civil War. Eight men were killed, but Stephen Fuller survived mm-hmm. and we are most grateful to him for his evidence because otherwise we really wouldn't know what happened. The incredible misfortune to be just on on that mailboat, the wrong place at the wrong time, and he ends up on land and that's the end of him. That's it, exactly. Have you visited the the, the site? Many times. I'm drawn to it, but at the same time, there's an atmosphere there which I find very disturbing. So I do, any time I'm in the vicinity, I go there. And particularly with the centenary and everything? Yes, yes. What, What draws you to it? It's hard to put a finger on it. Mm-hmm. Um, some would have it, us believe that it's the spirits of those who haven't found rest. Yeah. Uh, I don't know myself, but uh, I pay homage to it, the events. I meet people there who similarly share the same emotions that I do. And uh, Tim, Dr. Tim Horgan, who maintains the monument, it's also gripped by this. Yeah. And Paddy Fuller, I'm very grateful to him for bringing the relatives of the dead together in 2014 for a funeral mass because the dead never had a funeral mass. Mm. The bishop had excommunicated the IRA and their bodies, or what was left of them, was not allowed 
inside a church. Wow. And Pawdy gathered the families together in 2014 on the anniversary and we gave them a funeral mass. And I'm so grateful to him for that. A funeral for the first time. It's yeah. extraordinary. Is there a grave to visit? Uh, my granddad was buried in the Republican plot in mm-hmm. Rathas and I've visited that. His name is just about legible on it. Wow. And it's just, so it's amazing that you go to the actual... Uh, the actual site of, of the massacre, as you say. Uh, but what we're supposed discussing uh, and what this documentary goes into is the, the legacy of this trauma on your family. So you have young John O'Connor. He's, he, he's, he's blown up in Ballyseedy and uh, he leaves behind a, a wife who's in Liverpool at the time. That's right. She, she has a, a two-year-old. That's your mum? Yeah. And uh, explain to us what happens to her then, because she comes from Liverpool over. Well, John made a tactical error, although he can't be blamed for that. When they arrested him, he gave his next of kin as his own father, who lived in Inishannon and was an ex-RIC police constable. Mm. And he thought that might cut him some slack with his captors. It might have suited better if he had told them that he was married to an English-born woman and they might not have killed, selected him for, for execution because they wouldn't have wanted to upset the British. Diplomatically yeah. embarrassing, perhaps. So, to answer your question, Eileen heard of the death from Edmund O'Connor, John's father. Mm. And she travelled, left my mum with, with neighbours. Yeah. Uh, so she leaves a two-year-old daughter behind in Liverpool. And travelled to Tralee where she was taken under the wing of Kamenamon. And we know little of precisely how she was uh, arrested, but I understand that the Power Sisters, who were publishing a Republican newspaper, wanted to send a message to Dublin to send them a new typewriter, because the one they had was falling apart. And they gave her a message which she hid in her hat, and the soldiers searched her, found it and arrested her. So it goes from bad to worse. This bereaved woman um, is suddenly arrested and she ends up in Kilmainham jail. That's it, exactly, with the Power Sisters and Hannah Moynihan, who wrote uh, a diary of their time there, which references Eileen. She has a terrible time in prison. Well, she was getting sick every day, which meant that they all got to stay in the prison infirmary. Mm-hmm. You've probably been to Kilmainham Jail, yeah, as I have. It's a haunting place, isn't it? There was a fire burning in the infirmary all the time, and so they all had the benefit of that warmth. But it turns out that Eileen was pregnant with my mother's younger sister, yeah. Eileen, also. Unbelievable. So she's uh, she's bereaved, she's pregnant, she's in she's in prison. So what happens? She does finally get some relief, doesn't she? Well, she was she was released after about a week and returned to Liverpool. And I understand that she began agitating, writing to newspapers, telling the story of how her husband had been killed. Yeah. And then Anya Kant of the Irish White Cross mm-hmm. Children's Relief that was Organization. The widow, the widow of Eamon Kant, who exactly. um, was one of the leaders of the 1916 uh, Rising, executed in Kilmainham. She, she takes up the case of your grandmother. Well, she begins to support my grandmother with a small stipend every month. Oh, wow. 15 shillings. She sent her by cheque. 
and that was very welcome indeed. And when Eileen was born on the 1st of November, she also received the same. And we're very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Aidan Larkin talking to Oliver Callan about his grandfather and the Ballysidi massacre during the Civil War. Trauma Tialig starts this Wednesday at 9.30 on TG Car. an Irish summer be without a 99? Well, we may be about to find out because the common or garden flake may no longer be compatible with whipped ice cream. Claire Byrne spoke to Yasmin Khan, co-owner of Teddy's Ice Cream in Dunleary, about the very real possibility of our summer being taken from us. Over the past few weeks, ice cream sellers and cone connoisseurs alike have been complaining that the flakes in our 99s have become too... Crumbly. So what's going on? Well, joining me now on the line is expert Yasmin Khan, who's co-owner of Teddy's Ice Cream in Dunleary in County Dublin. Good morning, Yasmin. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'd say it was a good weekend for you, was it? Oh, it was fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. And it's beautiful today as well. So lots of people buying cones, but is there a problem with the flake? Um, there is. They they moved the manufacturing to Egypt and the quality of the product um, isn't great. Mm-hmm. So you, ha- you saw this last year, didn't you? We did, yeah. It started kind of the bin- uh, at the end of the previous year and then last year there was huge losses on the product. And, you know, for us, a 99 is really, really important. You know, we... As much as we do other products, our big seller is the 99. And people have little traditions and routines that they do with their 99. Some people like to eat the flake first. Some people like to put it into the centre of their ice cream, you know. Um, and when if you get a product that when you pick it up, it just breaks up in your hand, it's no good. Mm-hmm. So it's the people, I'd say, who eat the flake first that have the biggest problem with a crumbly piece of chocolate. Well, yes, and when we were putting them in, they were breaking up, you know, with our guys who were making the 99s were finding it really difficult because when they'd pick the flake up, it would just break up in their hands. So it might be in one piece in the box, which is fine, but as soon as you go to use it, it's in bits. It's it's in bits, mm-hmm. exactly. And now, that... in, in saying that, there was a lot of breakage in the boxes when you would open them as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously there's a cost factor there for you Yasmin Oh it's huge it's huge we were at about um, over 40% loss on the flakes last year And do people Um, complain to you about this? Well they do Um, what we had to do was be a little bit inventive and sell ice creams rolled in flake instead so we were kind of trying to catch cover our losses mm-hmm. but um, for me I, you know I wouldn't be happy with it I love a 99 and I really I wouldn't be happy with somebody giving me that and having to put two pieces of broken flake into it instead of making you know it should be a quality product and you should get what you want Yeah I mean rolling it in flake nice but not a 99 is it? No no There's nothing beats a 99 for Irish people they love it now, since the production moved to Egypt, I know lots of ice cream sellers like yourself, they complained about what was happening with the flakes breaking up and they did change how they packaged them. But it seems as though the problems are, are not fully sorted. Well, it's not it's not the packaging that was the issue, really. I mean, they've changed the packaging, but they've only changed the packaging to be more eco-friendly. 
um, they've gone to a brown box. It's it's nothing to do with the fact that the product was inferior. But the, they so, insist, though, that it's the same recipe, it's the same product. They say nothing has changed. Well, you know, they're, they're saying that, but they also admitted they had an issue with the production last year and that there was a problem with them, but they've now rectified it. So any flakes that are dated for the end of this year onwards should be a better product. Okay, a listener says, why not use a twirl instead of a flake, Yasmin? It's not a 99. I mean, listen, if you come up to me and say, can I please have a twirl in my ice cream instead of a flake, we're happy enough to do whatever you want. That's our job. But it's not a 99. Mm -hmm. Um, What we have done is try to source other products that will be just as good or better um, because it's really created a massive problem. And it's not it's not only us. It's across the board. There are complaints coming in from every direction, you know, any 99 sellers. They just, you know, all the prices have gone up, the price of your base mixes and so forth. So to try and sustain this is really, really difficult. And have you found any flake-like product that might do the job? We have found one and we tested it. I've tried it, you know, our families have tried it and it's really good mm-hmm. and it's really durable. And well, I, I'm not going to say I prefer the taste, but it's just as good. So we're going to try it out and see, you know, what people think about it. Oh, when are you going to try it um, out? Ah, uh, well, you see, if I told you, then people would know the difference. <laughs> I need to know if they do or not. That's Yasmin Khan, co-owner of Teddy's Ice Cream in Dunleary, bravely stepping in to try to save our summer on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. There's a video of a six-year-old and his dad in a studio singing a song called Casper and it's been viewed on TikTok millions of times. The man in the video is Robert Grace and the six-year-old is his son Lincoln and they're from Greg Namana in County Kilkenny. Robert joined Ray Darcy in studio this afternoon to talk about how the video came about. So, so you're going to bomb on TikTok? Yeah, well, you know, trying to keep up with everything that's going on and right. trying to think of, like, the next move. And, yeah, it's going well, thankfully. So this little video of you and Lincoln recording Casper, uh, how many times has it been watched now? Uh, it's nearly at 30 million views now on TikTok. I think it's, like, 20, 28, nearly 29 million at right. the moment. So that's six times the population of Ireland. Yeah. That's pretty crazy. impressive. It's mental, yeah. <laughs> yeah it's yeah. crazy. I mean, I didn't, ex- I didn't know what to expect. Yeah. Uh, when I uploaded it, but it just absolutely took off. I think I woke up the next day, it was on like three and a half million and I thought that was unbelievable. And then as it just, uh, I think in in a week you had like, um, it was like 20 million in the week. Right. It was crazy. And you can't argue with that, those sort of figures, can you? That, no. That, that's real viral. Yeah, that's it. Like that, that was like my first, that's the, my most viewed video now yeah. uh, that I've ever had. And it was the, like I've never, I've gotten like millions of views before, but never anything that quick and never okay. anything to that scale. So like, you know, I think the most I've gotten before was maybe nine million, you know, nine and a half million. Let's find out a little bit about you then. So you, you have Lincoln and you have a daughter as well. Yeah, Bonnie. Bonnie, what age is Bonnie? Bonnie's two. Right. Yeah. Um, so is it Lincoln Grace and Bonnie Grace? Yeah. Well, they're, they're tough names to... to... <laughs> Grow up with, aren't they? Because yeah. Lincoln, Lincoln Grace, he'll have to be a movie star or something. Yeah, or a that's I, th- when we were when we were trying to think of a name for him. Um, I don't know. We I used to watch this show on YouTube uh, called Good Mythical Morning, and right. there was two guys who presented called Rhett and Link. And I thought I thought Link was just your man's nickname, you know. But then I found out his name was Lincoln, and I thought that was really cool that his 
like he could uh, call him Link. Link, yeah. Yeah, I just thought it was a really cool yeah. name. And so that's kind of where we... Lincoln Grace and yeah. Bonnie Grace, yeah. Uh, and Lincoln is six. Um, and, and you've been recording and you've had a number of hits. Uh, I was on your Spotify page. So millions and millions of streams. Uh, the, the breakthrough song was about the pandemic. Yeah. And about your mental health. What was it called? Uh, Fake Fine. Right. Yeah. Fake Fine. Yeah, yeah. Right. Uh, it's a good name. Yeah, I mean, again, I, I like I'm weird with with names when I kind of whatever I call it usually when I record a demo is usually the name that sticks. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I don't like I get used to it too quickly, so I don't like to change it. So that was the kind of name the first time I recorded the demo, or I think it was just a bit of the first verse. It says so much though in two words. Yeah, that's exactly. Yeah, I think it describes uh, it describes the song. You know, that's yes, exactly it. But you know? did it describe you? Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, a hundred percent. Yeah, and I think. Uh, especially with that time it connected with so many people. people and that's why it did so well is because everyone was kind of feeling a very similar way Yeah So tell us about you know you were putting out a, a facade a face to the world but inside you were feeling quite different Yeah I mean it was the first song that I ever wrote that was you know came from a very personal place like it was about me it wasn't just a story do you know what I mean so um, yeah I was kind of scared about putting it out I remember the first time I played it for my parents I was like look <laughs> like, I'm okay just before I play this for you like everything is okay you know because when I did write it like I, I was I was in a bad place and like it took me a long time to kind of um, you know get over it and, and I still like you know it's it, you have your ups and downs I think as an artist in general you're going to have you're going to have really high highs and really low lows you know so at the time when I wrote it I was in a you know a very low place and like I was very close to kind of giving up uh, doing music I've been at it like I mean over 10 years you know and it's only in the last three or four that I'd actually mm. uh, pay it off you know yeah, somebody do some people do it a lifetime and it never pays no off. of course yeah. of course yeah, I, like yeah. I, I think I was just at the point where like I had a young I had one kid at the time and just like it was just a struggle to like pay for everything like you know for money for money for anything you know you're either choosing to pay for food or pay for electricity or pay a phone bill or so I was getting to the point where I was I didn't know what else I would do though. So that's why I kept kind of pushing because I was like, I literally gave my whole life until now to music. So I don't have any like hobby. It is my hobby. Like right. it's also my work. So yeah. um, I just thankfully it ended just when I was about to give up, it kind of worked out. So so, so huge pressure then because now like up until whatever age, what, what I'm 24, there was just you to worry about. Yeah, yeah. Which is fine. You could live at home and do whatever you tinkle away and record and all that. And then Lincoln arrives and you're responsible for this human being. Yeah. And you have to it. provide for that human being. And yeah, that, that, that was... That's big pressure. Yeah, definitely. But he also kind of put a kind of fire under me as well because I think right. I wasn't probably doing a whole great really before he came along either. And when he did come along, it really kind of put stuff in perspective. And like, it's probably the hardest I've worked since he was born, you know, and the most, like the hardest I've worked because of that. Like, because I was like, I need to try and make this work yeah. for him. And I think it just got to a point where I was like, I don't know. I was like, am I am I actually good enough? Maybe I'm not good enough. Like maybe, like I'm I'm what I think I am is not true. You know what I mean? Like because I did have a lot of confidence in myself when I was younger. You know, and when you, you used to get, I used to get really excited about every little thing. Like just getting, you know, any kind. Like the, my first play on the radio. I remember that, and I think it was just in maybe in Kilkenny or something on KCLR. And I remember just that was huge for me. Do you know what I mean? And I was so excited about it, and even playing little like 
gigs in places like you know I was super excited about it. and then that just kind of went away over time and when you kind of realise I suppose when you're younger you think like ah, I'll come out of school and I'm just going to be famous like you know it's just going to it's just going to work out you know and then you realise that it's just really not that easy at all yeah. Did your dad slag you and say you're going to be famous? Does it, does yeah my father used to tell me all the time when I was when I was younger that I, you know I was going to be famous and like oh when you're famous now you can you know you can buy me this house here or something <laughs> like as you know I'm messing but like there was a point then when I actually believed it you know and I'd be saying yeah when I'm famous now I'll get uh, you know I'll do this yeah and uh, I really I think, think that was good that was a great thing for me though because it, it I honestly did believe it for a long time mm. you know and it's only in when things got really tough it just started to kind of slip away do yeah. you know what I mean? uh, and and fake fine it. it and you say it resonated with a lot of people and it struck home because that's what we do as humans, don't we? We, we sort of put on this facade and it, it's dangerous enough because you're going around and that takes energy, doesn't it? Yeah, to put yeah. The, yeah. And then you're you're suffering inside and you could be using that energy to get well instead of putting on this, this exactly. fake face. Yeah. yeah, that's it. And I think like as Irish people as well, we just have this thing of like, ah, I'm, I'm grand. grand. Yeah, I'm you know, grand, yeah. no matter what's going yeah, on, yeah, you're going to yeah, be absolutely yeah. dying inside. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, it's like, yeah. no, no, I'm grand, I'm fine, you know, so... Yeah. That's Robert Grace talking to Ray Darcy this afternoon about the song he wrote getting somewhere in the region of a bajillion views on TikTok. Finally on this edition of Playback Daily, as the last episode of Succession comes to our screens, Claire Byrne had an item about cringe-inducing TV and why we love it. To discuss it, Claire was joined by Adele Coffey, journalist and author, and 2FM's Connor Behan. And the piece was beautifully kicked off by the remarkably cringe-inducing scene from season two of Succession when Kendall Roy takes to the stage at a celebration of his father's 50 years in business. Good evening, everyone. It's a pleasure to have you here tonight to honour my dad's life and work. So when Rhea was planning this, she asked me to help out with, um, with a little tribute to the certain... Uh, Flavor. And after a lot of convincing, well, here we are. Is he about to strip? My boy Squiggle cooked up this beat for me. Check it. Born on the North Bank, king of the East Side, 50 years strong. Now he's rolling in a sick rod, handmade suits, raking in loot. Five star general, y'all best oh, no. salute. Yo, bitches be no. happy, but the king is oh, no. no. Ken W.A. I read it. It is burning my eyes, but I cannot look away. That's exactly what we're talking about. It's burning my eyes, but I can't look away. Cringe TV shows. Some people love them. Some just cannot bear to watch. Connor Behan, DJ and host of the Request Show on 2FM, was sitting here visibly cringing. <laughs> I was watching you as that. it started. You were like, too. oh no, here we go. <laughs> and Adele Coffey joins us as well, journalist and author. Thank you for being with us. Connor, the fact is some people just can't bear to watch stuff yes. like that when it's just too cringe mm-hmm. inducing. Are you a fan of it? Do you like it? When it's done well, I really think it's very satisfying. You have to be in the humour for cringe comedy and even a show like Succession, which is drama with a dash of very well done cringe comedy. But when it works, it's so satisfying and there's something so like, I can't believe they went there, but I'm so glad they did and the kind of you're laughing and also recoiling into your couch as you watch it. <laughs> and Adele, what about you? Do you enjoy watching scenes like that or is it sometimes just too much? 
<laughs> yeah, no, I really do enjoy it. It's funny, cringe TV is not actually my go-to TV, but actually I do, I, I'm a huge fan of Succession. Obviously, please, no spoilers. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm in that camp episode. too. Don't Claire worry. takes over at the end. It's Claire Byrne. She's the big reveal. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think cringe TV actually is in some ways this kind of, why it's so unbearable to watch is because it holds a mirror up to ourselves, I think. And I think that's why I don't watch it as much as I watch other stuff, because um, it is just so uncomfortable because any of us could be in that situation where we think something's a good idea, like perhaps making a rap for our father's <laughs> 50th work anniversary. And then it just, you know, it's just so unbelievably embarrassing, uncool. I think uncool is a huge part of cringe TV. You know, if you think of all all the characters I know we're going to talk about the most famous ones um, but they're all they all share that well, innate let's, let, uncoolness Let's talk about some of those uncool characters now so The Office here's a clip um, if you can bear this one this is the original British Office first David Brent talking about his music career before he became a paper salesman Yeah and I get all this oh David you know you're a brilliant singer-songwriter you're stuck in Slough while it's Texas that are off you know, making all the money. You know, and they're rubbish compared to you. And I go, don't slag them off. I say, I've been there. I've done that. You know, that's behind me. You know, and I, you know, I respect... thing is, uh, we're both good in our own fields. I'm sure Texas couldn't run and manage a successful paper merchants. Yeah? I couldn't, you know, do what... Actually, I could do what they do. And I think they knew that even back then. Probably what spurred them on. Spaceman came down to answer some things. The world gathered round from paupers to kings. I'll answer your questions, I'll answer them true. I'll show you the way, you know what to do. Who is wrong and who is right? Yellow, brown, black or white? Spaceman, he answered, you no longer mind. I've opened your eyes, you're now colorblind. Racial. So. Is he the ultimate, David Brent? Is he the ultimate cringe character? He's certainly up there. I think when you think of British cringe comedy, it's David Brent and Alan Partridge are probably neck and neck. And then, of course, the American office and Michael Scott, who is basically the American David Brent, has become, I think, canon for people who are into cringe comedy as well. We have a bit of him as well. We'll take a bit of uh, Michael Scott from the American office. This is during a party. Michael wants to make a speech. Um, everyone, I'm sorry, should I have your attention, please? Thank you. Ah, hi, sorry, I just have an announcement to make. Um, okay, I have learned a lot about Indian culture tonight, but I have learned even more about love. And I know you're all thinking, who is this crazy gringo and what is he talking about? Well, I'm not crazy. Maybe I'm crazy in love. So, without further ado, Carol, Carol Stills, I would like you to do me the honor of making me your husband. Oh, Michael. What do you say? Can we talk about this in private? I didn't hear you. Can we talk about this in private? 
make it stop. <laughs> it's like the answer to every video of so-and-so proposed at a festival. You're like, that's what they probably really want to say. <laughs> I don't want to get married at Codaline. Can we come back to this in a year, maybe? Anyway, so yeah. Oh, that was uh, that was hard. That was it's, it's, going. It's, we have had the US office there yeah. and we had the UK office. Mm-hmm. Is there a difference between how both places use cringe comedy? I think so. I mean, American cringe comedy has been very successful. I think sometimes there is a sense of they try to redeem the characters or they're a little bit softer or they try and find more of light and shade. I mean, the UK office, sorry, the US office got bigger when they actually made it a little bit warmer and brought the character stuff into it more. So that was, I think, the difference with that in the UK one. Uh, Del Connor made a point earlier where he said you have to be in a certain, feel a certain way yourself to enjoy cringe comedy. Do you agree with that? That there are just certain yeah. days where you go, I cannot watch that today. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I think, uh, and now I know Catastrophe is not cringe com- uh, comedy, but I found it really difficult to watch Catastrophe when it first aired because I was going through almost exactly the same experience um, in many ways. And I just felt like somebody had eavesdropped on my conversations that day um, to write that script. So I I kind of found, I think you have to be in a nice, confident place because I think so much of cringe comedy is about your worst nightmare being lived out or your worst social faux pas or your worst gaffe. And if you um, are in a bad place or maybe, I I think there's a lot of loneliness actually, particularly in characters like Alan Partridge and David Brent. You know, there's so much loneliness and desperation for connection that if you're feeling that way yourself, which we all do at times, it's not the thing you need to be watching to cheer you up. Like yeah. Journalist and author Adele Coffey on this morning's Today with Claire Byrne. Adele was talking to Claire along with 2FM's Connor Bean about the place cringe-inducing TV has in our lives. And that's all I have for you on this edition of Playback Daily. The programme is compiled, written and edited by me, Neil O'Shirathon. Don't forget you can listen back to all the programmes featured on Playback Daily on the RTE radio player. And there'll be another episode of Playback Daily at the same time tomorrow. Probably. Until the next time, for me though, thank you for listening and good luck. <laughs>